this Sunday and the following four Sundays, as James said, we'll be spending some time, sort of a mini-series on our vision statement and core values. Our vision statement, really any vision statement, ought to be your why behind your what. The why that drives the what you do, or don't do, for that matter. Um, your why can really change how you do your what. Uh, think about maybe two guys doing the exact same job. One of them is constantly frustrated, feels like everyone's out to get him, stressed out and joyless. The other is joy-filled, working. The job is happening well. He doesn't overwork or underwork. The difference, the first one, his job was for to promote himself. The second one saw his job as a gift and a means to serve others an example of how things can be so different. Our vision statement, as you heard earlier, James said it, I'll put it before us again. We're a people who are embracing our need for Jesus, delighting in him, and joining in his work of redemption so that all things reflect the goodness, truth, and beauty of our triune God. We didn't just cook that up out of thin air. We believe it comes directly out of Scripture. And what God is calling us to be. So we're going to go there. We're going to go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's printed for you in the bulletin. If you brought your Bibles, you can be turning there. But uh, I want to say this about this passage. You, you know, you could, if you boiled it down, if you tried to get to the core, the, the essence, basic definition, or maybe a profound definition of what it means to be saved, you might find yourself in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. <laughs> All of Scripture speaks to it, but maybe in a concise word-for-word way, this uh, in profound ways describes what it means to be saved. So I want to get the kids' attention real quick. You guys were up here earlier, but I want to get you guys looking at me because I love how James does this. It's so helpful because you kids can teach us adults as we're called to have a childlike faith. Um, so I want to get you guys to help us by listening for a few things. One, what are we being saved from two what are we being saved for <laughs> i love the responses this is so good i like just to interact and then what could prevent us from getting there or what gets in the way of us enjoying it so let's listen together okay ephesians 2 1 through 10 this is god's inerrant and infallible and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray, asking him to lead us through this time in his word. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken, that you've made yourself known to us, you've given us your word, and I just pray that you would speak in power through a broken, cracked, and leaky vessel saved by grace alone. Would you do this for your glory? Would you do it for our good? In Christ's name we ask, amen. I was uh, talking with my dad recently, and he was telling me about an interaction that happened at a, on a job site uh, at some point. Uh, one guy was talking to another guy, and they were talking about what it means to be saved, and one of them said, well, you know, uh, if, if unless you're baptized at the moment of your salvation, it, it didn't work, and of course, I heard that, and I go, that doesn't sound right, um, and my dad goes on to describe that this guy also was not particularly uh, loved by everybody no one liked working with him and he was always sort of had this undercurrent of anger and confrontationalism and all of that and I go "Mm, he doesn't get grace graceless Christianity there you go now while that might be true in my heart I was gloating over that and saying you know he doesn't get grace but I get grace I understand grace and you see what's happening in me I'm Forgetting grace over the fact that he's forgetting grace. You see how subtle we can miss grace? It can be so subtle. Uh, Brennan Manning in uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, he puts it this way. The, the bending of the mind by the powers of this world has twisted the gospel of grace into religious bondage and distorted the image of God into an eternal, small-minded bookkeeper. Put bluntly, the American church today accepts grace in theory but denies it in practice. Too many Christians are living in the house of fear, not in the house of love. I think that perhaps one of the greatest threats to uh, or barriers to living out our vision statement is a graceless Christianity that can be pervasive and our uh, nation and our society and our culture and our community, and we can find it in our own hearts. But here, in this word, you just heard it. <laughs> the, the, power, the power, the clarity of what God says, that, uh, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive. It's all grace. <laughs> it is all grace. So I believe when we see our desperate need of grace, when we delight in grace, when we walk in grace, we'll be living out our vision statement. Now, this sermon is not going to be a sermon on here's the how-to steps to do our vision statement. I pray that it's a culture-shaping sermon, shapes the culture, continues to shape the culture of our church, a grace-filled culture. I believe we are, and I think we're always growing into that. So let's think about this together. This, this, this passage breaks down into kind of three parts, and there's three parts to our vision statement. Embracing our need, delighting in Jesus, and joining in his work. Let's, let's go to our need. Verses 1 through 3 are pretty clear on our need. Uh, 
I call this, uh, this part the illusion of self. Our need is the illusion of self. Paul in verse 1 says, you were dead. You were dead. Now, what is he talking about? Well, for one, we come into this world totally blind to being able to see our greatest problem. We're dead to it. We can't see it by nature of what it is. We're born with spiritual death. Our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they, when they chose to do life apart from God, uh, you know, they, they basically believed the lie that God's not trustworthy. I don't know that he... He's, I think he's holding out on us. We're going to do this life on our own. We'll go eat that, knowledge, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we'll figure this out on our own, right? Well, you know what God said to them when he warned them about that tree? He said, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Hebrew behind that could, in some ways, quite literally be translated, in dying you will die. See, there's two deaths. In spiritual death, you will physically die. We're born with one death, and we end with the other in this life. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? We don't come into this world feeling very dead, and there's lots of children around here, and they come into this world with tons of life and energy, way more than I do. My kids are running circles around me. There's so much life in youth, but what does it mean to be spiritually dead then? Well, verses 1 and 2, if you put them together, he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Walking Dead, <laughs> the name of a great TV show, I guess. The Walking Dead, we don't know it. I don't know if you, have you guys seen, this will date me a little bit, it's got, I realized it was came out in 1999, but the movie The Sixth Sense, have you seen that? You remember that? M. Night Shyamalan had a way of throwing this twat, uh, plot twist into every movie that he did, and uh, The Sixth Sense had that, and the main character, Bruce Willis, uh, he was a child psychologist, and he met this little boy some course of the movie who was struggling, and he took him on as a patient, tried to meet with him and all that, and there, at one point in the movie, sort of one of those big moments where he says that famous line, uh, Bruce's character's there with the little boy, and he, the little boy says, I want to tell you my secret. I see dead people. It's that famous line if you've seen the movie. And Bruce Willis' character goes, well, you mean like in graves or in tombs? What are you, what are you talking about? And he says, no, they're walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. That was the big thing. Then later in the movie, a little bit later, Bruce's character comes home and sees his wife asleep on the chair, and she sort of rolls over, and his wedding ring falls out of her hand, and he realizes I'm not wearing my wedding ring, and then he sees that she's watching their old wedding videos, and then all these memories come flooding back into his mind that he remembers the day he was shot and killed, and he goes, Whew. you know, the, there goes gravity for him. He's, his world is turned upside down, and he realizes, oh my, it's me. It's, it's an interesting story and a great crazy plot twist, but in some ways, it's how we are spiritually. We don't know it until we know it. We don't understand it until God makes it known that we are spiritually dead and totally incapable of anything. All those illustrations break down somewhere. But the point is, we didn't know it. And we only saw what we wanted to see. We didn't see each other, or at least not rightly. The same point can be made. 
It's the herd mentality too, right? It's the following the course of this world, the course, the ways of this world. The, the world says, you do you. You realize your own potential. You seek happiness. Seek to make yourself great. Burger King says, have it your way. It doesn't really work. But that's the course of this world, and, 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 and we're all sort of following that together. We're, we're drawn in that together, and it's exactly what the ruler of the power of the air wants us to be doing. That's Satan, by the way. That's who he's referring to. He wants us to blindly, uh, deadly be following the course of this world. Seek happiness, and you will not truly find it. Because you'll never know if you've gotten enough. Seek significance, and you won't find it. Because there will always be somebody that seems more significant than you, and you will feel less than. Seek comfort, and you won't find that either. Because you will always be in fear of losing it if you do get some of it. C.S. Lewis, you know you're going to hear from him when I am up here. Um, C.S. Lewis says, what I, what I call myself now is hardly a person at all. It's mainly a meeting place for various natural forces, desires, and fears, etc., some of which come from my ancestors, some from my education, some perhaps from devil, devils. The self you were really intended to be is something that lives not from nature, but from God. You see, we keep drilling down. The prob under the problem, underneath the problem, underneath the problem. You know, we were born the walking dead. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. But it all gets down. You keep going down underneath, underneath, underneath. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. <laughs> Heard me say that before. My mentor says it, and I, it just it makes sense. <laughs> Verse 3 is really getting at that. It says, all these things we were following, we were uh, the same spirit that was at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, it's all basically the inward bent self. The inward bent self. Self-centeredness, self-seeking, self-focus. By, by nature, we're blind to our greatest problem, right? Think about this. Uh, you've never actually seen yourself, your physical self. You've seen reflections of it. You've seen depictions of it in a photo. You've never actually looked upon yourself. <laughs> I'm seeing all of you, but I'm not seeing me because <laughs> I'm seeing my hands. But you think about that. I mean, that may be a strange thought, but it's kind of, Hey, it makes sense for how we see ourselves in all kinds of ways. It's much, it's much easier for me to see out there and, and look for something else to blame for all my problems, right? Well, if that person had not said that or done that, I wouldn't have reacted that way. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have been like that. But you know, if this, this situation hadn't happened, I would have, right? We all do that, don't we? And we fail to be able to see that. I am my own worst problem. I am the worst thing in the room. <laughs> I am the, my own greatest need in here. <clears throat> if I can't see my greatest need, 
then I will not be able to live out this vision statement that we have. I'm not going to want to embrace my need. I'm going to want to hide from it. I'm not going to want to delight in Jesus. I might uh, see him as useful. I'm not going to delight in him. I'm certainly not going to want to join in his work of redemption. I'm going to be too busy building myself up, my own little world, my own little kingdom. I'm not going to be joining in his work. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way. He said, self-centeredness is hell begun in you. And if you continue in it, you'll find yourself there eventually. Because uh, you know, Jesus describes hell in some cases in this way. It's the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's sort of this eternal separation. It's aloneness. You get yourself, and that's it. It doesn't sound fun when you think about it like that. Our need is huge, is what I'm trying to say. I'm building all this up to say our need is huge. There's, you know, Paul continues to use some pretty powerful language. In verse 2, he uh, says that the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That would be like a great name for a biker gang, right? Sons of disobedience. <laughs> and we sort of picture that, though, right? That's, that's, that's out there. You know, I keep, keep myself cleaned up. I keep tidy. I attend church every week. But actually, the Greek behind disobedience is, is related to our word apathy. So it may not be just the hell-bound, hell-bent, whatever person that we might imagine out there. It might be us sitting here totally apathetic to Jesus. You realize that maybe that hell-bent person, when they fall in love with Christ, they're in love with him. And maybe someone who's just doing a good job and trying to keep their nose clean, but they're apathetic to Jesus. Which one has understood grace? There's so much more we could say about our need, but I don't know about you, but I need to hear about what God has done. I've heard enough about me <laughs> and how, all, how, how much I need Jesus. Well, here's what God has done. It's, it's, it moves us to the next point. It's the next part of the vision statement. It's delighting in him. And it just jumps off the page in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. <laughs> if I am, if I don't, if I am dead, I don't even see how hopeless I am. And so I'm super busy trying to fix myself up, and I miss that. But that, what I just read, that, that is the tidal wave of the gospel that ought to wash over us every single day. We need to wash ourselves in it every day. I need to hear it every day. You need to hear it every day. We should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. We don't ever get beyond it. It's not like we graduate to, to deeper and better things. That is it. Like We grow deeper into it, and we need it every day because we can forget it. We can just drift back into old ways. You know, God made us for joy. You know that? He made us for joy. The Psalms talk about it. Psalm 16 at the end says, uh, Joy, pl pleasure forevermore are at your right hand. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. It's why we actually are chasing around those uh, 
desires and passions of the flesh. We're trying to find joy and delight, but we're trying to find it in places that won't actually give it to us. They just let us down. At best, at worst, they'll destroy us. So we realize what God has done for us in Christ. See the magnitude of it, how big, how grand, how awesome it really is. You know, we spend our lives trying to, apart from him, trying to establish our place, trying to have a place in this world, trying to make a self, but we're ceaselessly, tirelessly, joylessly trying to do that. Or we're fearfully, anxiously trying to protect some version of self, trying either to create some seat at a table to be in, or trying to protect some idea of a seat at the table. But God made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ. The creator of the universe, think about this, traded seats with us. You see, earlier it says we were uh, children of wrath. We were sitting in the seat of wrath. That's our seat. That's our proper place apart from him. Because he's holy and we're not. So we're sitting in the seat of wrath. And by the way, wrath... Uh, maybe sometimes we struggle with wrath, but wrath is, is God's love to not want to see his creation perish. If you take away wrath, you lose love. You're left with an apathetic God. He cares that much. But we're sitting in the seat of wrath because it's what we deserve. But Jesus came and he said, I'll sit in your seat and I will take that wrath and I will let you have my seat. sit with me. It's amazing. That is the gospel of grace. It is so big. I can't emphasize how big it is. Essentially, Paul sort of makes up words here because he's trying to describe how beautiful this is. This uh, made us alive with Christ, uh, raised us up with him, and seated us with him. He, he essentially takes some verbs in the Greek and just adds a prefix to it, or literally it could be with made alive, with raised, and with seated. He just so integrally ties us and Jesus together that we're inseparable. And we get all those things in union with Christ. That's how big this is. Our aliveness, our raisedness, our seatedness tied to Jesus. It's amazing. Why doesn't it always captivate us? Why are we not overwhelmed by the gospel every day? Why am I not? Why are you not? Sometimes we are. And some of us may be more than others at times. Why? Because many of us, at some point in our story, have tasted a cheap imitation. And that's a real thing. I was, when I was in seminary, I uh, had tried Indian food for the first time. And then then I concluded that I didn't like Indian food. If you know anything about me, you know that I love Indian food now. But then I didn't. But after, just after this one first experience, and it was a lunch buffet. And, <laughs> and I didn't understand most of what was even going on on that buffet. And afterwards, it really didn't even sit that well with me. So I concluded that I didn't like Indian food. But later... 
I got to taste some better stuff. When we moved to England, Indian food there is pretty good. It's really good, actually. They've got, like, almost the corner market on it <laughs> outside of India I- itself as a nation. We got to go one time to a, um, a cooking class, Michelle and I. We went to an Indian family's home, and it was a mother and a daughter cooking for us, teaching us how to cook and eat it while we were learning. And they were cook, te- uh, teaching us recipes that were handed down from generations, and we got to taste the real thing, and it was awesome. And it was the layering of spices and the smells and the flavors, and it, it was so good. <laughs> Tasted the real thing. You see? Sometimes we've just tasted the cheap imitation when, when it comes to Christianity. Places that will... Tip the hat to grace, but put all the pressure on you to get it right. Places that have turned Christianity into consumerism. Places that have turned Jesus into an advisor to help you have a little bit better life. Places that tell you that if you had more faith, you'd have more blessing. Places that would tell you that if you had had more faith, that bad thing might not have happened to you. Places that teach a be better, do better message. Meanwhile, sovereign grace is lost and forgotten somewhere in a dusty old attic. And people who've tasted that don't have delight. Maybe duty, but not delight in Jesus. Because they're operating under fear of rejection and not the joy of sonship. We can all tend towards that. We We can think of someone else out there that needs to hear that, but we all need to hear this. Paul was most fierce when he spoke to or wrote to the Galatians, uh, most adamant, because they had adopted a counterfeit gospel. They had added circumcision to Jesus to be a Christian. We know that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's very easy to think of someone else that's doing that, but how are we doing it? How might, how might I, how might you be Tempting towards functionally adding something to the mix. Adding something to the equation. Whenever we do that, it will steal our joy. It will steal our joy because we'll always be wondering, did I get that thing right? Did I really mean that? Did I, did I, did I choose the right thing? Or we'll be fearful of losing that thing, whatever it is. Being made alive and raised and seated with Jesus is sovereign grace that will transform you from drudgery and misery to delight and joy. It's not like a switch is flipped in us, right? We, we're learning this the rest of our lives to live into it. We're, we're growing out of those old ways and growing into those new ways. So if you struggle with this, you're in good company. We all do. We're learning to grow into joy and delight. But when we're growing into that, it will move us outward, outside of that self, that illusion of self to this reality of grace. And we move outward towards God and to others. We'll be a church that's on mission in this community, to this world that's starving for grace. It may not even know it. So there's that. So let's talk about the third part of our vision statement, the joining in his work of redemption. And it really is verse 8 to 10. It's what I'm calling living in this new reality. We have the illusion of self in our need. We have the reality of grace, and then we have this living into this new reality. 
know, when the light comes on, I can see. But in a dark room, all we can sense is ourselves, right? You think about that, it's totally dark. All I sense is me. I'm in this dark room, and I don't know, is there anything in here? Is there anybody in here with me? I don't, I don't know. When the lights come on, I see others. And I begin to see myself rightly. I begin to see that maybe I was about to trip and fall over this thing that was right in front of me. Before, I was living as a spiritual orphan. If God can't be trusted to be the captain of my soul, then I've got to be. And everything and everyone, including God, becomes something to serve that end. To build myself, to build my own kingdom, to take care of me. But when grace lands on me, when grace lands on us, when we surrender to it, when we see that we're seated with Christ, we no longer see God and others as a, a means to an end, as a means to secure myself or be safe or comfortable or whatever. Look at verses 8 to 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See the new purpose? <laughs> when we are shifting off of self and on to others, there's a whole different purpose. Something that was actually prepared long ago beforehand. It was already prepared for you to walk in it. What are good works? What are those? Well, there's a lot of things specifically they could be. But generally, again, it's, that, it's the inverting of being dead in self and self-centeredness to being alive in self-sacrifice. Mark In Mark 8, Jesus says, Those who seek to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives for my sake and the gospels will save it. Just talk briefly, a few marks before we close, a few marks of this uh, tra transformation, this uh, growing out of self and into uh, these good works, joining in his work of redemption. What are some of those marks? I want to just offer three. One, it's a movement from an undercurrent of anger and frustration to gratitude. Verse 8 again, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even my faith is a gift. When I'm bent on self, when I must establish my own identity, hold on to my identity, then there will be an undercurrent of anger and frustration because if anything doesn't go according to my plan, I'm frustrated. It seems to be going against what I'm trying to do here. We all have those times, don't we, where we have that under, undercurrent of frustration, but it, we're, we're freed out of that when we see the gospel of sovereign grace and we begin to see that all of life is a gift. We see that everything is a gift, even my faith. That is a gift. Everything is a gift. When I begin to see that, it moves me out of myself. What would it look like to live all of life as a gift? The second thing, second mark I would offer would be that it moves us out of uh, comparison games to humility. Not, no, verse 9, this, uh, our gift of faith, all that God has done for us, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. No more boasting. 
if I am bent inward on self, I must prove that I am someone, that I am worthy, that I am okay. But the problem with that, with that is to do that, I've got to find somebody else around me who's a little bit worse than me, or at least in my eyes, so that I can, comp in comparison, look, nah, I'm okay. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like this guy over here. Right? Don't we do that? We've got to measure up. But at the same time, people are measuring against me too, and how, how am I doing? But when I see my need, when I see sovereign grace, I'm free to admit I am the worst person in the room. And I'm not just saying it. I see it and get it. I am my own worst problem. But I can admit that and have a life of humility Embracing sovereign grace because of what God has done. Third mark, briefly, we are moved from blind self-focus to seeing others. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it doesn't just say uh, we're created for good works. It says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's specific. It's the things that he is at calling us to do. It's his mission. It's what he's doing in this world. And so we begin to get uh, off of self. When I don't need everyone around me to come through for me or do something for me or have their lives for my life, when I'm, when I'm flipped out of that onto seeing them, when I don't need that, I can, I can see them. And then I can see other people. And we can begin to see them like Jesus does. He's the Savior, we're not, so that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just seeing them the way he does. Being able to, to listen to hear someone. You know the difference between listening to reply and listening to hear? Well, listening to reply is more about me, what I want to say. But listening to hear is hearing that person, to hearing the deep waters of their soul, to know where the healing balm of the gospel can be applied. Begin to participate in his work of redemption. You can do that anywhere. You don't have to go to Germany or England or India. You can do it where you work, where you go to school, in your neighborhood, in your friendships, in your family. Any personal interaction. You can do that. Because we swim in a community and a society that is largely put together on the surface. We look pretty good. Right? We're doing okay. But on the inside, people are clawing down the insides of their souls, needing to hear the gospel of grace. And we don't know until we lean in. I'll close with this briefly. The story of a new friend of mine out met on the ball field, another parent. We were talking one day about, you know, what do you do? Well, what, oh, this is what I do. Well, I'm a pastor at a church here locally. And I go, oh, what, what church do you go to? And all that. And then, you know, a week or so later, a uh, person came back to me and said, hey, what was the name of that church? Um, this friend had had their mother with them and said, yeah, my, my mother's a uh, practicing Catholic. She really wants me to practice, but I'm, I'm really just not. I'm not a, not a practicing one. Like, okay, fine. I, I want to say that I think it really comes down to relationship with Jesus. It's not a practice of something because it's all about grace and not anything we do, can do, or should have done. It's all grace. And it was so awesome to just have that conversation with her because she smiled. 
at the same time, she goes, oh, that sounds really scary. But yeah, it is. I'm with you. It's very scary because it means we have zero control, and it is all God, <laughs> and we surrender to it completely. It was such a fun interaction. It encouraged me. It reminded me of the beauty of sovereign grace. Grace changes everything, and it asks for everything. It's not cheap. It asks for all of us. What is the greatest barrier, I said at the beginning, to living out our vision statement? It's missing sovereign grace. It's misunderstanding sovereign grace. But also the greatest invitation to coming to Christ is sovereign grace. <laughs> Won't you surrender to him today? It could be the first time. Maybe you've been a church attender all your, all your life, and, but now you're seeing it and you're fearful of, gosh, what was everybody going to think? They thought I've been a Christian for years, but maybe now I'm just now coming to know it. It's okay, don't let fear hold you back to surrender to Jesus. For us who are in Christ, believer, let us daily surrender to sovereign grace that we might truly live out this grace-filled vision statement. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for grace. Lord, we forget it all the time. We forget it every day, but I pray for all of us here that we would surrender to it. I pray for anyone here, here who has not yet surrendered to it, that you would open their eyes to see that the beauty, your beauty, your love, your grace. I pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen.